0: So AI in healthcare, it's a fascinating topic of conversation. And I just actually read very recently that the World Health Organization has released a new publication. And this new publication is listing key regulatory considerations on artificial intelligence for health. Now, it does seem to emphasize the importance of establishing AI systems, safety and effectiveness so that it can, I would imagine, rapidly make accessible a appropriate systems available to those who need them. In your opinion, Carolyn, who could specifically benefit from AI-driven healthcare tools and why?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's a pretty broad question because I feel like they're pretty much everyone probably could, but in different forms and facets. Of course, I definitely agree that we need to have some kind of safety regulation in place, especially you think of the healthcare industry as a very safety first conservative industry for good reason, right? We're taking care of people's lives. But at the same time, we also don't want that to be a barrier to adopting new technology, right? So when it comes to AI in healthcare, I think that First and foremost, I would love to see it improve the health equity by giving access to high-quality healthcare to people who don't have access to it today. I also think that part of that might be increasing the reach of healthcare. I think the other part of it is also spreading the ability for physicians to perform high-quality health care to a larger group of patients, right? The way we do that today tends to be very manual. It's very uh, manpower heavy and therefore very expensive. And as a result, not everyone is able to see a doctor within a certain period of time. And I would hope that AI would be able to work on multiple sectors within our industry in order to help speed that and improve that. I already see a lot of that happening, especially in like the admin, operational efficiency side. And now fintech is kind of coming into that play as well. But I think we have a lot of space to grow here. And so I'm pretty excited. Mm -hmm. I mean,
0: I can sense the optimism and excitement when you actually are speaking about that. Do you see yourself as a technologist or is there more of a motivation from your side? As you mentioned, you'd like to improve health equity. Where's your own direction? What angle are you coming at it from?
1: Yeah, I actually think that those two streams, so my theory is that those two streams are actually going to converge in the future where I believe that primary care physicians, so I'm an internal medicine doc and I have practiced primary care, especially preventive medicine. And I actually think that the primary care physician of the future is going to look more like data scientist and a technology driven person rather than what they're doing right now. And the reason for that is because as the population of the world grows, right, and especially in the U.S., we have um, a few studies coming out that in, within the next decade, we are going to be short tens of thousands of primary care physicians. Mm. Um, and so we're going to need some kind of technology to bridge that gap. Otherwise, we're saying that people in the U.S. are not going to be able to have access to healthcare, right? And so I actually think that that role means that primary care physicians are going to need to be trained in understanding these data models, understanding these risk models and AI machine learning tenants so that they can understand and evaluate models that they can use. And kind of going back to what you're talking about, safety and regulation, also efficacy was one of the things you said, right? There's you know, the advent of chat GPT and all sorts of kind of like this little boom that's going on in healthcare for AI. You also need a way for people to understand and evaluate the models that are coming out, right? And understand how you would apply them to a specific patient population. It's kind of similar in my mind in medical education training, how physicians are trained to understand research papers and to understand studies What's effective? What makes sense? What were the biases in certain studies so that you can understand the interpretation? of new uh, recommendations or guidelines that are coming out. I think it's going to be a really similar thing to AI machine learning models that come out. It's just a new set of skills. And we are going to need physicians to have that new set of skills. And that's kind of why I think like that technologist user persona you were talking about and the physician persona are probably going to converge in the future. Mm.
0: So let's discuss that a little bit more. Let's look at the sort of collaboration or the inter- connections of the primary care physician and the technologies that are on offer today, especially when we're talking about artificial intelligence. So hi everyone, it's Lauren hawker Welcome back to Redefining AI, the tech podcast. Today, I've been joined by Carolyn Ward, the Director of Clinical Strategy at Particle Health. Now, she is a trailblazing internal medicine physician and advocate for patient empowerment. So welcome, Carolyn. It's really wonderful to have you here with me today on Redefining AI. Thank you for having me. So let's backpedal just a little bit to set the scene so if we look at it from a high level where would you see the and again this is this is quite a big question where are american practitioners on their own ai journey because obviously you've just highlighted that you think that the actual sort of persona or the profile of primary care physicians needs A little bit of a reinvention, or there's a tendency that they need to go more in the direction of a data scientist. Can you give us an idea of where everyone is on their AI journey in that ecosystem?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would say they were all very, very early on this journey. And, you know, there's still a lot of conversation, I would say, in the industry about where does AI truly fit in healthcare? what are the places we should be pushing it the most? What are the places we shouldn't be pushing it, if at all? And it's really interesting when you look at where AI has really started to play a role. I would say it's, predominantly in like the admin operational efficiency, right? We're talking a lot about like, can we use AI scribes for note-taking? Can we use natural language processing to pull out data from certain clinical notes so that they could summarize it so it's easy for a physician to read, right? There's also like a ton of stuff when it comes to scheduling and, you know, like a a lot of like care coordination, where do patients go? How are they getting care? Which I think is going to be really helpful. We also see a little bit in the diagnostic space when it comes to imaging. So can you apply AI models to look at pathology slides, x-rays, CAT scans, and diagnose something, right? And from that standpoint, I would still say things are relatively early. There's a ton more that we can do. I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about kind of why I think we need this. And part of it is because, you know, I talked about the physician shortage that's upcoming, at least in the United States, right? With our growing elderly population, less and less people uh, going to medical school compared to how many doctors we actually need. And there actually is not really a feasible way to increase enough training spots to meet that demand, right? So we know that you're not going to be able to push more people into medicine at a rate that would actually meet that demand. Also 10 years is almost one training cycle. So it's basically the doctors who are going into training right now. And so It's interesting. Um, There was actually a study that was done in the Annals of Family Medicine that essentially did an estimate of like, what is a reasonable patient panel for a primary care physician? And I thought it was really interesting because they did it based off of an assumption of how many tasks you could actually delegate away from the primary care physician. And one of the things they showed was if you could delegate 77% of all preventive care away from a primary care position so another team member is taking on that and 47% of chronic care also gets delegated away that essentially would mean that your primary care as a team could take on about a little over 1900 patients which is really interesting because right now what we're seeing is that On average, there's actually a lot of studies about what is the average patient population or panel for a physician in the U.S. We usually quote 2,500 as the average. I don't think that number is actually based on anything, but a a recent meta-analysis said it could be anywhere between 1,200 to 3,600. And so if you're looking at all these models where like maybe it's concierge medicine, where you're seeing a much smaller patient panel versus a super busy practice, up to 3,600 patients. That's basically assuming that you have a huge team where you're able to delegate the vast majority of tasks away, which is actually not really reasonable. And that's actually where I would love to see a lot of like the AI space come into play here to start to see like, what can we actually do to help a primary care physician expand the panel that they're able to take care of? And it's Mm -hmm. probably not going to be a one-on-one, you know, patient relationship. It's probably going to be, look a lot more like population health management.
0: Definitely. I mean, that was going to be my question, I think. So from what you've outlined, what is an interesting component is that you've mentioned that obviously a lot of actually, well, the application of AI pertains to the administrative and operational efficiencies that are undergone or undertaken in primary care. You also mentioned, though, that if you're to look at like preventative care or chronic care, are they areas that you could see AI playing a different role and a necessary role, as you said, like taking tasks away from primary care physicians? And why are they not being taken away? Like, in your opinion, why are they still at the stage of admin and operational efficiency and not in actually taking you know, bigger tasks? And I don't know if that's the right word. Maybe you can expand on is it more accurate you know accurate like what would be the the right description
1: there yeah i mean i think that the example i like to give is in precision medicine for oncology so when you look at the oncology space the cancer treatment and diagnosis space there is a lot of gray zone, right? So even when it comes to you get a diagnosis, which treatment exactly is the best for you? There's obviously a lot of gray zone. There's a a ton of clinical trials. There's a lot of research, especially in like genomics and really specific precision medicine of saying, hey, based off of all the data we can gather from you as a patient, you have this diagnosis this treatment is probably going to be best for you. And we actually see a lot of new companies starting to spread up in like treatment pathway selection and that precision medicine piece, both from the research side, but also from the actual treatment side with patients of managing patients and understanding like what path they should go down, what drug should they try. And the reason for that is because there's just a ton of research that goes into oncology. They really are one of the like leading forefronts of Genetics, genomic research, molecular research, and a lot of this precision medicine space. What I would love to see AI do is basically pull that kind of model into primary care. And so the idea is right now, if somebody were to come in and tell me, like, hey, I want to lose weight, like what I would tell them is like, hey, here are like five drugs that might be a possibility for you. And also you should probably diet and exercise. But when patients come in to see me, what they're, what they really want to know is like what diet? what exercise, Mm. how much, right? And we don't actually have a ton of robust research to say for you as an individual, this is what you should be doing to lose weight, right? For you as an individual, this is what you need to do to not get diabetes, to not have a heart attack, to decrease your blood pressure. And so what I would love to see are these kind of preventative risk models where we could basically input all of the data that a patient generates over time and create a model of what, would happen to them if we just left them to their own devices? What would happen if we modified that and said, hey, if we added in, let's say, 30 minutes of cardio exercise hitting this heart rate, what would actually happen in the future? And that type of precision medicine is something I think that patients are really hungry for. This is like an area that a lot of people are looking towards. It also would help physicians to be able to have more directed conversations, more targeted therapies for their patients.
0: Do you see that solely as an augmentation or a replacement? Because here, if we're talking about the precision component and you're looking at the integration of what seems to be AI data analytics and almost predictive analytics, is that again, you know, the augmentation or replacement? Like, do you think that patients are at a stage where they would actually trust a fully automated system? or what is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it would probably start out as augmentation, right? You give the tools to the physician to better equip them with the answers that we can give a patient, the options, right? So that you could better inform the patient and the patient feels like, okay, you actually know who I am. You're taking into account all these different data points, whereas like right now you go to see a doctor, a lot of the information that a doctor has, you as the patient told them, right? And that doesn't instill a ton of trust because as a patient, I don't know what's important. I don't know if I'm telling you all the important things you actually need to know to make a decision. But I think if we had a more robust data aggregation pathway to input into these type of models, that would gain a lot more trust. It would also give us more nuanced answers to give to our patients, That being said, I totally hear you. There is still a ton of distrust because AI is a very novel technology, I would say, for the public. And there's a lot of distrust from the physician side as well, right? There's been a bunch of uh, recent studies and opinion pieces out about how if you do come up with a really complex AI model that does show you a lot of really interesting insights, physicians actually won't trust it unless they understand the model itself and how it came to that answer. That's part of the reason why I think That type of training is going to need to be added into healthcare training because these models are only going to become more prevalent. And if you don't have a way to understand and trust that model, you probably won't use it.
0: Do you see Bennett. that as being an a, like a sort of valuable investment of time as well? Because that's almost an additional skill set. And it's going back to the core point that you introduced at the start. I mean, it's an additional skill set that then physicians are required to take on to understand the data aggregation, the model that is then presenting them with an augmentation to the to their own decision. But you, you see that as, as a benefit then for future.
1: Yeah. I do this might be a, a controversial opinion but when you look at least in the United States when you look at medical training a lot of it is really still an apprenticeship model which means you are a trainee and you follow a current licensed doctor around and you learn from them and it's not exactly one to one but it's a very similar model which is one not a very scalable model to for training but also if you think about it and actually the education system as a whole even outside of healthcare the way that we learn, at least probably you and I growing up, was like memorizing a lot of facts, right? Like you had to like memorize a lot of things and then you had to write them down on tests. But like knowledge and access to knowledge is really just fully ubiquitous at this point. And so, and also, especially in healthcare, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is there's so much knowledge out there. It's not even really feasible to think that one person should have to memorize every single medical fact and disease out there, and then remember all that, hold it in their head for every patient that they see, right? And back in the day, yeah, a doctor could see you with their little black bag. They had like five things in there, and they would go house to house. And no matter what you kind of said, they just picked one of those five things, and that was your treatment. Nowadays, like what we know about science and healthcare is so, so, so far advanced from that. That it's not really feasible, in my opinion, for one person to have to remember every single fact, every single detail, and then apply it, right? And that is technically how we practice medicine today. We now have a lot of things like clinical decision tools, algorithms, so that some of that algorithmic work where it's like very clearly, if this, then that, can kind of get taken off the plate a little bit, and so that physicians can have focus on like the higher level thinking work. But we really need to see more and more of that happen, right? And
0: I think that, I mean, that's all very interesting input and, and food for thought there. I think, though, that one component that you touched upon as well as you mentioned that, you know, in healthcare, there's so much knowledge. And the knowledge relates me back to obviously one of the challenges in healthcare is that interoperability amongst different systems and data sources. I mean you have a lot of data sources if there's information especially and I don't know the exact nuances in the system and how it functions in America but certainly in Europe you have the ability to go and see different primary care providers. So I mean and there's a lot of criticism and also a lot of prominence being placed nowadays on the importance and the ever importance and even more importance to some extent of the actuality of the data. So not only the actuality of it being up to date, but you also having access to all of the data sources that you need access to. I mean, is that not a challenge that needs to be overcome first before you introduce anything more complex?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. It's actually one of the reasons why I'm working at Particle to try to solve that exact problem. But certainly in the United States, this is a huge problem, I would say. There is a ton of fragmentation in data systems. And that's because we have a ton of different electronic health record vendors, we have uh, a ton of private hospital systems, public ones, we have, you know, Our urgent cares that don't belong to any health system. We have private practices. And so what happens is that you go to all these different people for healthcare of different kinds and none of them actually talk to each other. So every provider you see only sees a small slice of the pie of the data that you've generated. And of course that causes a lot of problems, right? And when we, especially like even before we get to AI, it causes problems, but especially for AI models that require a lot of robust data input, when you are missing, let's say, 50% of that person's data, you can't really trust that output too much, right? And so one of the things that um, there's been a big push for in the United States from the regulatory side is the idea of interoperability and getting these systems to talk to each other or at least exchange information. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because on the one hand, it is a law and a regulation within the United States that providers who are taking care of patients must have access to their records, and also patients themselves must have, by law, access to their own health records, which makes sense because it's their own data. Mm-hmm. But when you actually go to like practice it, there's a ton of hurdles, right? And practically speaking, you don't get access to that data. And it, even if you do, you often don't get it in real time, or it takes a lot of manual faxes back and forth to get them. And that's absolutely a problem. I mean, I think that is something that needs to be solved. And it's a problem that we're taking some steps forward within what we call the clinical data space. So that's, you know, the clinical data that lives within an electronic health record. But in the future, you can think that there's probably a lot of other data sources that we care about, right? Like wearable devices, you know, your Fitbit, your Apple Watch, we're gonna care about that kind of stuff. Your medical devices, right? Your glucometer, your pacemaker. We're gonna also wanna collect data on things like where you eat, where you shop, where you live. And all of those things do affect your health. And we are going to need to move into a system, in my opinion, that aggregates all those data sources so that our models are able to look at the full breadth of data that you generate as an individual.
0: It's almost like going back to, again, then the, the the whole precision of of that as well. I mean, the interoperability, the aggregation of data, the sources that are put in and what you're providing for individuals. Do you see AI and data in that respect? And it sounds very much like you do. I mean, you're extremely enthusiastic about it. But do you see that as really contributing to the advancement of precision primary care? And And what would be the benefit of that to an end patient?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I definitely see there's like a few different ways that machine learning or AI could help us with specifically with interoperability. The first one is identifying where data might live for an individual patient, right? without relying on the patient's memory of listing every single provider they've ever seen, which no one remembers. And the second one is then going through that data and being able to lift insights. So the question is for any given interaction you have with a healthcare provider, there's a certain clinical context that's important, right? So certain pieces of data matter more than other pieces of data. Right now it's incumbent on your physician to look through all of your data and then make a decision of what matters the most. There is obviously a barrier of how long a physician can sit there and look through all of your data, even if they had access to it. So access is a problem, but even if they were to have access, nobody has the time to sit there and look through like 10 years worth of records, right? Right. And so I think that's also an area that AI can help us kind of understand at any given moment for what you're coming in with, what is the significant clinical context? And then ultimately for the outcome for the patient, what this will mean is that decisions will be made in the most informed way, right? Sometimes we make, you know, a lot of medicine is the gray zone. You never know with a hundred percent certainty anything, but if you could add more data and move you from 50% certainty to 75, that's pretty good. Or 75 to 90, that's really good, right? And so I think that level of confidence for the physician matters, and it will matter when they convey that recommendation to the patient. I've had tons of patients who, you know, you say, hey, I think maybe you want to try this, try eating more vegetables, try doing this. And they're like, but how do you know that that will work for me? Like, I a lot of patients are like, well, if you're not sure, then like, I don't want to put in the effort either because I'm definitely not sure if my if my physician's not even sure, right? So it's really, I think about establishing that confidence in the decision-making, which translates into trust on the patient side.
0: Very much so, very much so. And I think as well, I mean, there is a slight component of, disruption to that as well, just because it's, it's possibly unfamiliar. And I think that disruption as well, regardless of whatever industry it is, and obviously we're talking about healthcare, sort of disruption in healthcare, you know, there's often a lot of questions that are raised around equitable access. Mm-hmm. Um, in your own opinion then, Carolyn, what sort of strategies or policies do you believe should be in place to ensure that, you know, that this AI-driven healthcare innovations that it really does benefit, as you're talking about, you know, you've got that personalization aspect that is benefiting all of the populations, regardless of, you know, social economic or geographic disparity. And that is a big consideration and the, the, the American healthcare system as well in particular.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the good news is that actually there are a lot of new companies that are starting out predominantly focusing on the underserved patient population. So people who are either uninsured, underinsured, the Medicaid population, which are kind of like our poorest and sickest, honestly. And so that gives me a lot of hope because I think there is a lot of feeling within the industry of, hey, we haven't been able to reach this patient population in the past or haven't been able to like do right by them effectively. And we want to be able to push this technology boundary to reach more of these people. And I think we see this kind of in some of the early waves, like telehealth, for example, right, allowed – it was convenient, sure, right – but it also allowed people who couldn't get to a doctor to see a doctor. Another really interesting place I've seen this is in second opinions. So these are like companies that allow you to get a second opinion or a specialist opinion remotely. So an idea is like, I could send you to a Johns Hopkins cardiologist, but maybe you live really far away from Johns Hopkins and you're not going to fly there, right? But now we have these systems in place and these different companies where, hey, your physician who lives down the road from you could access the knowledge of a Johns Hopkins provider for that specialty care, right? And I think that that is a really good example of how we can start to democratize that kind of knowledge so that people who live really far away from these centers of excellence, from these academic hospitals, and from these specialists, especially for rare diseases, will start to have access to that same level level of treatment and knowledge in their own care. And that's what I'm really excited about.
0: Which would be fascinating as well, and you should be excited about (laughs) that. So I want to thank you. You can really see that you are an advocate for patient empowerment and you've certainly helped empower us on our journey today on redefining AI. I'm sure that our listeners have been able to profit extensively from the knowledge that you've shared. So again, we thank you, Carolyn, for being on the show.
1: Absolutely. This is a blast.
0: Thank you.